You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And yes, they live. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. <laughs> um, before we do, th- I've just got to tell this because um, um, I'm hoping it makes our outtakes. So every week, uh, <laughs> as a cue point, because we... we we record this as live. Andy sings the theme tune uh, as we've got a cue. But this week he's, he's gone. He's gone big jazz hands uh, with his version of the film file, which I think Andy should be our outtake for this week. Just so I, I, I don't look I ridiculous really. talking about. It. Yeah, those of you who've never listened to the outtakes at the end of each episode over the past few weeks, I've got into the habit of cutting all the bits out from the show that don't fit or this way. You know, one of us stumbles over our words or says something rude or obscene, and uh, they kind of get dropped in as a little like um, post-credit sting. Because you know we're we're big Marvel fans, so why not emulate Marvel with the post-credit stings? Yeah, that'll go on this week. Uh, I I love playing with the theme tune. I love mixing it up. Um, Yeah, one of these days I'm going to do a really depressive, long, slow version (laughs) that'll go on for about twenty minutes. But you won't be too happy with that one. But you know, at the moment. I'm kind of in a boisterous mood. I'm in a tired but boisterous mood. Tired but boisterous. How's your week been, Andy? It's it's been it's been tiring through work. Uh, lots of day shifts and a night creature. I'm a creature of the a night. Creature Ooh, of ha, the ha, night. Ha. Um, so What's with day, the music? They play? day shifts don't work for me because I, I have to get up really early, but I don't go to bed until really late. And no matter if I try to go to bed early, my body's like, not happening, mate. You are sitting here in bed, tossing and turning and reading comics, and that's all they end up doing. Uh, but I have had a really good week. I've, I've been really, really happy, and I can die a happy man. You can die a happy man? Why uh, Why would... Why? Just why? Just why? Um, well, back when the Marvel films kicked off, and they were bringing the B-list... What were the B-list Marvel characters? Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, not the big heavy hitters like Spider-Man, etc. And I was constantly getting asked as a big Marvel fan, which characters would you like to see enter the MCU? And me being me, I don't go for popular ones. I go for obscure ones. So I had three obscure characters. One of them was Rocket Raccoon, who I've loved since his 1980s four-part series. And I got to see him in Guardians of the Galaxy. Another one was Howard the Duck, which um, people wondered why I wanted that person from the 80s film. And it's like, no, 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 no. I want the one from the comics, which we got introduced in Guardians of the Galaxy again. And we've seen him. We've seen him toting a gun in Endgame. And the third one, which no one had ever heard of, and I had to explain who it was, was <laughs> Eugene, the fabulous frogman, a.k.a. Leapfrog. And this week in She-Hulk, I got Eugene, the fabulous frogman, a.k.a. Leapfrog. And that's it. I could die happy. Hold that thought. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that later, and I'll, I'll explain why. It's a, it's a good question, actually. Who would I have? Well, well Shang-Chi was always the one that I, I yeah. wanted to see. And you know... I've got a great idea for Kazar. Deathlock, I think a great Deathlock movie. Ooh, if, you, Deathlock. if you're going the more obscure route, Deathlock. Yeah, de- I'm Deathlock. I'm sure there's more. The, 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 you know, the better man's cyborg, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, th- that would be mine. Yeah, I'd go for that. De- I like Deathlock. I've got uh, a little bit of good news that I shared with you uh, the other day. Yeah. So when we started this, we started as the podcast, and then we got picked up as a radio show on a channel called No Barriers Radio, which is was a small one when we started. We were one of the first shows. I had a, a rock show on there, which is kind of stalled for the time being, even though I'm 
going to do a, a Halloween version of it. But we've been with it now for a couple of years. Anyway, a few months ago, I mentioned that we got 4,000 listeners. And we were over the moon because there were 4,000 international listeners, not just uh, not just the UK. Hello, anyway, Utah. We, yeah, Utah. Hello, Utah. <laughs> and um, hello, India as well. We, were, we yeah. were popular in India. So we've got the latest figures through. And it kind of blew our socks a little bit because we conservatively have 20,000 listeners but we also have a potential through uh things like soundcloud and soundmix to be nearer to 50,000 so the best selling show gets 50,000 and we are somewhere between the 30 and, and 50 but we, we know that there are 20,000 listeners so hello and uh if it's your first time because we always talk about uh this on the radio come and listen to the podcast Welcome to the podcast, but that's that's good news, isn't it? It, it was it floored me when you told. I was good job I was sat down because I would have just like dropped um, when you told me. I mean that's fantastic news. You know, it, we we've kind of started this as a hobby. You know, this is just an excuse for me and Lee to talk crap for a couple of hours <laughs> and then try to make a show out of it. But it's to express our love of films, and it's great to know that there's a load of people out there who are actually you know tuning in to listen to us just talk about stuff. You know, obviously, we'd like to get paid for this, but, you know, we, we enjoy doing it. Getting that amount of listeners opens up so many potential avenues yeah. for us to grow the film file into something more. So, you know, we always plug halfway through the show about getting in touch with us. Do get in touch with us. If you are one of these people who's uncovered, uncovered us through the radio and then jumped onto the podcast one, get in touch with us. Give us some feedback. Tell us what films you want us to talk about. Or send us, like, you know, your your top five list. We'd love to feature some of you listeners on the show and, you know, give praise out. Because we are, we always say the Film File family, and we do genuinely feel that you are part of our extended families. Yeah, and, and also, guys, please feel free to share with your, with your geek mates the show because uh, uh, there's so much more we want to do. You, you, I've said this many times, uh, Andy knows, that I want to do a live show at some point and, and do much, 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 much more than we're doing right now. But uh, it, it takes listeners, it takes the opportunity to get sponsors on, and we are hoping one day that we can sort of fulfil a lot of the ideas that we've got. But it's all down to you guys, but we thank you anyway. But yeah, that was our good news for this week. So what have we got on this week's show? Well... We've got our build-up to Halloween in our deep dive as we go back. And this time, we do something a little bit different. We're going to be looking at Toby Hooper's two-part TV extravaganza. And yes, it was a film, so it's still film file. His adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Andy, we're going to be reviewing together... Mr. Harrigan's phone that landed on Netflix this week. And then I shall also go on to talk about Amsterdam and Woman King which are both showing at cinemas at this point in time. And I'm guessing we're both going to be talking about Werewolf by Night. I reckon so. But before any of that, we've got the news. Before the news, we do this every week. Let's talk about the box office. And I'm guessing in another week of being a fairly quiet week, that's going to... Uh, be mirrored by the box office. So the US box office this weekend saw Smile retain its top spot with another 18.5 million. It's now up to 92 million worldwide, which is pretty much a solid success for a low-budgeted horror. Lyle Lyle Crocodile is a new entry with 11.4 million this weekend. 
as some family fun from a singing crocodile. Amsterdam, 6.4 million, taking third place. The Woman King, 5.2 million. The moderately budgeted blockbuster has taken 64 million worldwide, and you'll hear my review later in the show. And don't worry, darling, sticks into fifth place. Still crawling in some money, took another 3.5 million in the US this weekend. It's just touching on 70 million worldwide to date, so should be going into profit. Here in the UK, Smile takes first place, taking another 1.7 million this weekend. Don't worry, darling, retains second place. It's doing considerably stronger on the drop-offs in the UK than what it's done in America. And internationally, it's playing similar to the UK, where it's retaining some steady figures. Lyle Lyle Crocodile is on advanced previews this weekend and took just over 1 million on Saturday and Sunday. The Woman King is into fourth place with 927,000. And Ticket to Paradise takes fifth place with 860,000. So next week, I'm guessing everything's going to look a little bit more potentially more rosy. What yes, news have you got for us, Andy? Well, I've, I've got to kick off the news with this one that really got me excited when I read it today. So Silent Hill game series. Yeah. There's not been any new games for a while. There was the one that was cancelled that um, was kind of in development and just got the rug pulled from it. Well, apparently there's new games in development. And this news came from director Christoph Garns, who gave us the 2006 Silent Hill film. He did. I absolutely adore that film. He also gave us Brotherhood of the Wolf, which if no one's watched Brotherhood of the Wolf... Oh, I love that movie. We'll talk about it. We'll we'll deep dive it one day. But he's been working closely with the team, Team Silent Hill, as they're known as, on the games. As he said, there's several games in development as we speak. There are several teams on it with a big line of games. They will revive the franchise. I think they were really impressed of the success of the remakes of Resident Evil that are evidently exceptional games. So there's rumours that they're going to be remaking Silent Hill 2 game. Now, we're not the game file, are we? We're the film file. We're not. We're not officially the game file. So, Christoph Gans, director of Silent Hill, then followed that with dropping a big revelation that he's making a second Silent Hill film. Ah. In this second movie, I'll try to explain that Silent Hill is a place that owes as much to the creatures that live there as what we project on the town. So I'll enter into something way more psychological and way more psychoanalytic in order to try to make people understand that Silent Hill isn't only this strange labyrinth that changes its form, but also the projection of tortured and tormented souls and sometimes of extremely paradoxical feelings that can be between mad love and violence. Now, for those who don't know the Silent Hill series, the town of Silent Hill has suffered some kind of fate that has trapped it in a limbo state. And people who have guilty consciences about something that they've done in the past end up there as a kind of purgatory, confronting their own hatred of themselves manifested in some kind of like creature or demonic form. They are fantastic games, and his 2006 film tapped beautifully into the aesthetics of the games. It was sadly followed by a a sequel by a director who had no idea what he was doing and was an absolute mess. But that first film stands up well as one of the best video game movie adaptations. So Christoph Gans being back on board to make a proper Silent Hill sequel made me extremely excited. And they are planning to start shooting early next year. So this is further along than what Okay. Oh, this is speculated. This has actually been already planned out. This is almost ready to go. This is this was stunning news. And it's a casual way that he just dropped it into a conversation about the games. It's like, whoa, 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 mate. Lead with that. Lead with the fact you're making a film, mate. So as a huge fan of the Silent Hill games and also his film, I have been waiting for this news since 
well, 2006. So you're looking at um, 12 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I was about to say, I got a lot of love. I remember playing Silent Hill on the PS2 and it mm. blew me away. I mean, genuine chills uh, when I when I played that game. First time I played Resident Evil as well. Resident Evil 2, I think it would have been uh, that yeah. same kind of, oh my goodness. Uh, but, but Silent Hill. I mean, there have been a, a, a couple of poorer games. I'll give it that. But yeah. I do go back to be, that being one of the most perfect games I've ever played, the, uh, uh, the first Silent Hill. It's the atmosphere. It's the way that it used the limited technology of draw distance on games and just clouded it to give a yeah. mist. And it became part of the aesthetic of the games that this yeah. mist stops you from seeing too far ahead. Marvellous way to use limited technology in a creative way. And the camera work within the games, which Gans then emulated on film, is just creepy and unnerving throughout can't wait. Very excited news for this. Yes. Update news on a couple of things that we spoke about last week. So quick news on Robert Eggers's Nosferatu film. Nicholas Holt is currently in talks to join Bill Skarsgård and Lily Rose Depp in that film. Uh, that's another great name to be added into it. Let's be honest, yeah. Eggers always picks great names to go into his films. So I'm sure we'll see another chunk of characters get added in the next week or so. And on the community news, Dan Harmon, is pretty sure that Donald Glover and Yvette Nicole Brown will be coming back. Oh, great. He, in a quote from him, he said, I think that Donald is coming, based on word of mouth, but it's just the deal isn't official or wasn't official. It would be difficult to really commit to doing this thing without Donald. So I believe he's coming back. I think if there are names missing from a list, it's because the names that are on the list, their deals are agreed. And that's okay to say that they're on the list. And anybody that's not on a list, it's just not the case yet. So there's nothing official about anybody being out. And Brown has been posting quite enthusiastically about the project on her social media accounts, which suggests that she's close to signing a deal. So it'll only be Chevy Chase, who, let's be honest, his character was killed off anyway. Like, will be the only one who doesn't Oh, but I'd love, them to, I'd love them to bring back Chevy Chase. <laughs> I mean, that, that would make say, me happy. Never say never, but, you know, this will mean that pretty much everyone except for Chevy Chase will be back. So, Andy, both you and I, have a lot of love for Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman movie. Yes. It was released way back when, what, 2017, I think? Yeah, it's about then, yeah. But the sequel was heavily panned. I have some love for it. That you have some love for it. I was disappointed, as a lot of uh, other people were. So there's been a rumour about Wonder Woman 3, and it was first announced back in 2019 that it was going to happen, that this time it would take place in the present day. And then for the last couple of years, everything has gone quiet. Anyway, Paddy Jenkins this week has said she has written the last final scene for Wonder Woman 3. And she's kind of interested as to what's going to happen next. Uh, so fingers crossed that we finally get to see the next Wonder Woman movie. And we know that Jenkins was supposed to shoot Rogue Squadron prior to Wonder Woman 3. But apparently that's no longer happening or is on hold. So there might be room now for Wonder Woman 3. And while I've not been impressed with Gal Gadot in, in other things that she's done, she was awesome, absolutely awesome as Wonder Woman, especially in that first movie. It was a, a triumph of being a, a great superhero movie. So fingers crossed. Yep. And I know she's also been suggesting that she'd like to stay around and do a fourth film as well. Yeah, I'm up for that depending on how things go. We don't know what's going to be happening with the future of DC at this point in time because they're still 
they're still kind of dealing with the aftershock of all the recent revelations. All that we know is that they are committed to the Flash movie coming out. There's been recent reshoots Ezra Miller was involved in. And there's more speculation that Superman cameos not only in Black Adam, but will also be cameoing in the Flash movie. And it will be Henry Cavill. Oh, okay. We'll find out for definite when the Black Adam movie drops only in a matter of weeks, whether this is true or not. But there's there's a lot of very strong hints that this will be the case. Let's see. It'd be great if they can keep him around. I think it'd be a shame if they've lost Henry Cavill as Superman. He wasn't in the right Superman films, but he was the right person for the Superman character. And I'd love to see him grow going forwards. Uh, Sticking with comics and... (laughs) It's kind of been a joke for the past two decades, hasn't it? How Todd McFarlane is so convinced that he's going to make a Spawn movie. (laughs) He was going to write it. He was going to direct it. I think at one point he was probably going to star in it. You know, he was a one-man army and signposting himself. He was his biggest fan on this project. So determined it had happened and nothing ever happened. And even his fan community have responded to him with the same thought that I had as soon as he revealed some news this week. Now, he broke the news this week that Scott Silver who wrote Joker, and Malcolm Spellman, who worked on Falcon and Winter Soldier, along with rising scribe Matt Mixon, are currently penning the script for Blumhouse's production. Apparently to star Jamie Foxx. Yeah, based on the comic book series, Jamie Foxx is still attached. Now, my response to this straight away, and like I say, the whole fan community were tweet, like everyone was tweeting back to him. It's like, you finally realise that you're not a good writer then, and you've got some (laughs) professionals in. And on the back of that, McFarlane looks like he's admitted that he's not the best person to direct it as well. He said in a, right. in a statement, if we've got an A-list actor, A-list producers, A-list writers, then do, do you want to shoot for A-list directors, A-list cinematographers? The answer is, of course, let's keep the momentum going. So they're scouting for a proper director to bring this project to life. This has been why it's not got off the ground for so long. Todd McFarlane, you're a comic book writer. You are not a screenwriter and you are not a director. Let the professionals work with your material and work closely with them on the story ideas. He's got great story ideas. Just let the right people make it. So we we should hopefully be seeing something happen with the Spawn movie now that some capable hands are working on it. Yeah, a word of warning, The Spirit, directed by Frank Miller. There, <laughs> yes. I said it. I said it, folks. I think it was a fair comment to me. <laughs> um, if you're talking about comics, obviously we've got to um, kind of mention some Marvel stuff, don't we? I guess so. Yeah, why not? So let's mention the Loki and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness writer Michael Waldron has now been set to write Avengers Secret Wars for Marvel Studio. This announcement follows on from the word the other week that Jeff Loveness was on board to write the Kang Dynasty, with Destin Daniel Cretton directing that project. Secret Wars will be the sixth Avengers film and will have its own director to be announced at a later date. And for now, it remains on track for a November the 8th, 2025 release. Uh, Waldron is also currently developing and writing Feige's secret Star Wars film for Lucas Lucasfilm, which apparently is still going to happen. Yeah, I, I get skeptical with any Star Wars film news because it, it just feels like we're just like going, yeah, oh, they're making a Star Wars film. No, they're not. Oh, you fooled us again. <laughs> uh, but eventually, we'll get to see it. And over at the the um, lesser Marvel, i.e., Sony verse, El Muerto, which will star Grammy winning the artist Bad Bunny. Uh, for Sony Pictures. Elmer Huerto, that famous comic book character yeah. who was in... Two one issue. <laughs> just <laughs> he, one. He was in one fully, and then he just showed up in about three panels of the second, next issue. Well, Jonas Cuaron, who gave us uh, Zed and Desierto, 
is set to direct it. Gareth Dunnett Alcoca, recently written Blue Beetle, is writing the script about the luchador with superpowers passed down from generation to generation in a single family. The film's in early development and will mark the first Latino character to leave a live-action Marvel film. I get the feeling that this was fast-tracked into production simply because of the Blue Beetle film being DC's introduction of Latino characters into their universe. And Sony got just basically went, oh, quick, clamour, clamour, what have we got? What have we got? And they've given us a character that no one cares about. Not to pour any further scorn on, on what you're talking about. I mean, yes, <laughs> let's look at the positive. Let's scorn it. <laughs> We've got a, a Latino superhero. Yeah. Granted, nobody knows who, it, who that is. But also, granted, does apart from that, does anyone really care? It's not that newsworthy, other than the fact that that's the only angle. And I'm not trying to cause any argument, but there are other Latino characters that I would like to see than, than this character. Or even yes. uh, invent a, a brand new character, but this character just doesn't fit with anything. I'm, I'm nothing against having a Latino superhero. Can't wait for Blue Beetle. Mm. But this character just feels... It's a square peg, round hole, just push, trying to push something that shouldn't really be out there. Yeah. Like I said, it looks like it's just a reactionary, quick, let's get something out there without it's a cash considering. Grab. It feels like a cash grab. Pure cash grab. Glass Onion, the uh, Knives Out movie. Yep. It's going to get one week of cinema exclusivity. Woohoo! And that week will not be the week before it lands on Netflix. It will be a month before it lands on Netflix. Even uh, uh, if I, I've had the energy now to do an even higher pitch, woohoo, I would be doing it. <laughs> In the, in the US, where this has mainly been announced, but it has been it has been rumoured that it will be worldwide at the same time, it will hit around 600 cinemas across the AMC, Regal and Cinemark chains, which is the first time all three of them have carried a Netflix release. The date of the release is the 23rd to 29th of November, Thanksgiving, uh, which is a month before the streaming release, because our cinema has been showing Netflix releases before yeah, the, yeah, hit, we've seen hit Netflix. And they've usually had one or two weeks just before the streaming. And they don't do great business because people go, I've only got two weeks to wait until it's on streaming. This should be different yeah. because it's a week that you get to see it. And then it's a month before you get a chance to see it again. So I reckon that this is going to work. And this might end up signposting the future model that Netflix will roll out with their cinema to streaming, for want of a better word, cinema to streaming model that they've been kind of experimenting with over the past couple of years. Netflix boss Scott Stuber has said, we're excited to offer fans an exclusive sneak preview of Ryan's incredible film. Given the excitement surrounding the premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, we hope fans will enjoy this special theatrical event in celebration of the film's global debut on Netflix in December. Very excited for this. We absolutely adored yeah. the first Knives Out film. Indeed. I'm, I'm going to jump in into TV land now just for a geeky second, and, and it's geek news rather than just TV news. So uh, Doctor Who, the air date for the 13th Doctor's final episode has finally uh, been announced with a new trailer and images. So uh, trailer is kind of in your face, as one would expect. Uh, Doctor Who, Power of the Doctor, will be the final episode starring Jodie Whittaker. And she's been a great Doctor. Um, the scripts have been a bit poor. Yeah. Uh, the direction, and I don't mean the actual physical direction, but the direction they've taken the Doctor has been arguably disappointing. Um, there's been a couple of highlights, some, some great episodes, but generally a disappointing run. Uh, the Centenary Special, as it's uh, referred to 
before its official title was revealed. It features Mandip Gill as Yasmin Khan, John Bishop as Dan Lewis, the Doctor's companions, as well as Sasha Darwin coming back as the Master, uh, Gemma Redgrave as Kate Stewart, and her final battle, her deadliest enemies, the power of the Doctor, is coming, wait for it, 23rd of October, a couple of weeks. Ooh, that's, that's a solid drop, isn't it? Yeah. Very excited. I've loved Jodie as the Doctor. Like you say, some of the scripts have been a bit lacking. And um, yeah, you're right in the, 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 it didn't quite really know where it wanted to go with this interpretation of the Doctor. It kind of meandered around a good bit. But overall, as me and the family, I have still been enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, the last one, I mentioned it on the show, though, the last Easter special was was, was the pits. It was abysmal. And, it, and it's hard to say because I've been a Doctor Who fan all my days. Yeah, you could tell it was, uh, we made this during uh, pandemic and yeah. various restrictions because it just felt very stilted and cheap. But it'll be a shame to see where it could go, but I'm so excited to see what Shooty Gatwa brings to the role. I'm always excited with a new Doctor. Yes. I'm always excited to see what they bring, what part of themselves they bring to it, what part of like, what previous Doctors they take inspiration from because they've all lent a little something from the first five incarnations yeah. so it's going to be interesting to see where we go from here um but yeah big doctor who fans big whovians big geeks basically we're both big geeks i'm going to go back to comics it's a comic that i've not read uh, i've been intrigued and i know it's sold bazillions of copies and it was from boom studios it's called berserker created i think by keanu reeves anyway mm. he's confirmed that he's considering directing uh, the comic book adaptation that Netflix are currently looking at uh, doing that. So I think if you've got Keanu Reeves uh, involved in a project like that, I uh, don't think it will go the way of, say, Grendel. This is BZRKR. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Berserker. Bez Berserker. I've not read it. I don't know much about it at all. I've heard good things about it. Uh, it keeps popping up every now and then as a suggestion for me to pick up and buy. And I keep thinking, yeah, maybe. Maybe, but I've got so many comics to get through that I, I have to just sideline things, but I'll probably get round to reading it. Richard Linklater's new action comedy has begun production. Always a fan. Always a fan. Um, it's named Hitman, and it sees Glenn Powell, who we recently saw in Top Gun Maverick, star as a Houston cop who's been working undercover as the most in-demand hitman in the city, but one day breaks protocol in order to help a desperate woman trying to escape from her abusive boyfriend. Linklater and Powell both co-wrote the script together. Austin Emilio, Retta and Molly Bernard have joined the cast of the project, which Linklater, Powell, Michael Blizzard, Michael Costigan and Jason Bateman will produce. And additional casting news, Francis Ford Coppola's epic drama Megapolis, which starts shooting in a couple of months in Georgia, has now added Dustin Hoffman, Chloe Fineman, Isabel Kussman, D.B. Sweeney and newcomer Bailey Ives to round off the cast. They join an already stellar lineup of names such as Adam Driver, Forrest Whitaker, Natalie Emmanuel in the three lead roles, and John Voigt, Lawrence Fishburne, Talia Shire, Shia LaBeouf, Jason Schwartzman, Grace Vanderville, Catherine Hunter, Aubrey Plaza, and James Remar. I mean, what ensemble a cast. cast. What a cast. Uh, the film, The Fate of Rome, haunts a modern world, unable to solve its own social problems in an epic story of political ambition, genius, and conflicted love. And it's budgeted at just under 100 million and is being independently financed by Coppola himself, who directs from his own script. So it's a pretty much a risk-free 
prospect for whichever distribution it gets. Viggo Mortensen is returning to the director's chair after his 2020 film Falling, and this time he's directing a Western. Yes. With the fantastic title of The Dead Don't Hurt. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm a big sucker for a Western. I've not seen Falling, so I, I don't know what Mortensen is like in the director's chair, but uh, colour me intrigued. Yeah, and it's, it's a classic Western kind of story this one as well set in the 1860s a french canadian woman played by vicky creeps starts a relationship with mortensen but the civil war divides them and they find themselves at the mercies of a ruthless rancher and his son and then he has to get revenge filming has already started on it so uh, that should be coming pretty soon let's just stay in the world of westerns and it was one of the i think one of the saddest stories we've ever reported which was uh, the tragic shooting on set of the cinematographer of Alec Baldwin's film, Rust. But there's been, this week, some further developments. Yeah, so following on from the multiple investigations into the fatal shooting of Helena Hutchins and the several lawsuits that followed, production will now resume on the Western drama. Hutchins' widow, Matthew Hutchins, has issued a statement announcing a settlement has been reached, subject to court approval, over the wrongful death case against the film's producers, which included star Alec Baldwin. As part of that settlement, the case will be dismissed and Matthew Hutchins becomes an executive producer on the film, which will resume with all the original principal players back on board. He added, I have no interest in engaging in reclamations or attribution of blame to the producers or Mr. Baldwin. All of us believe Halnia's death was a terrible accident. I'm grateful that the producers and the entertainment community have come together to pay tribute to her final work. And Baldwin posted a statement on Instagram saying, Throughout this difficult process, everyone who's maintained the specific desire to do what is best for her son, we are grateful to everyone who contributed to the resolution of this tragic and painful situation. There are still some lawsuits outstanding on this. It's not over and done with yet, but uh, the situation, at least the film's moving forward and should be used as a testament. It will It will strike controversy when it's uh, when it's released people are going to talk about the events rather than the film itself but at the moment at least the film's back up and running you can't say that it's good news but it is it is moving forward but some good news for me is that john waters is returning to films yeah i saw that uh, i love john waters i mean right back from his poop eating days <laughs> having your characters eat dog poop on screen and um i love hairspray uh i love crybaby i love some of i love pink flamingos i'm so pleased that uh, john waters is returning to films with a film called liar mouth i know nothing more about it than that but hey it's john waters it's john waters it's adapted from his own new novel which follows marcia sprinkle a suitcase thief scammer and master of disguise Dogs and children hate her. Her own family wants her dead. She's smart, she's desperate, she's disturbed, and she's on the run with a big chip on her shoulder. They call her Liarmouth, until one insane man makes her tell the truth. This is his first time behind the camera since 2004. I know. Which was a dirty shame. Yeah, which was okay. It wasn't the best. It wasn't his best film. He's an interesting director. He courts, courts controversy, and I think you kind of need that in a director. Yeah. Oh, I've got so much time for rules. it. Uh, speaking of directors who break the rules please do have you seen this essay that uh, is everyone's talking about which came from the crit uh, the uk-based outlet the critic which was uh discussing martin scorsese's filmography no no i've not I'm... the critic sean egan said that while scorsese's career is speckled with genuine greatness 
The truth, though, is that his directorial talent has never been as great as occasional masterpieces like Goodfellas tricked us into believing it was. And it's a proper hit piece, asserting that Wolf of Wall Street is achingly slow and Raging Bull is, and I quote, quite simply across the board bad filmmaking. What? Yes, uh, this has been lambasted and ripped apart online. One of the quotes, Scorsese doesn't really believe in cinema. He has consistently refused to work within the art form's natural parameters. Which is a good thing, surely? Yeah, because you have to follow the rules rather than actually, you know, be creative. Well, Guillermo del Toro has jumped in. Okay. He's jumped in. He, he puts it as succinctly as what everyone else has been trying to argue around. The amount of misconceptions, sloppy inaccuracies and hostile adjectives not backed by an actual rationale in this article is offensive, cruel and ill-intentioned. This article baited the traffic, but at what cost? To be clear, if God offered to shorten my life to lengthen Scorsese's, I'd take the deal. This man (laughs) understands cinema, defends cinema, embodies cinema. He has always fought for the art of it and against the industry of it. He has never been tamed and has a firm place in history. He then to talk about how he basically says that Scorsese doesn't stick to the rules of cinema. Quote from um, Del Toro. Most of the article is akin to faulting Picasso for not getting perspective right or for Gojin for being garish. If you assail these cornerstones, you should lay it out. You disassemble the work and build your position, not just hand an opinion with slamming adjectives. The whole piece that this criticism is about, it is pure clickbaity nonsense. And it's a problem that we see far too often online. The people are just doing hot takes just to get interaction. And yes, it got them interaction, but they've now got the ire of Del Toro and you don't want him working (laughs) against you. He's summed up the embodiment of what everyone who knows film and loves Scorsese is feeling at this point in time. So uh, UK-based The Critic, you make me embarrassed to be from the UK. And a critic. And a critic. (laughs) I could just give a list of of the great movies, Mean Streets, Raging Bull, uh, King of Comedy. I mean, there's been some films that haven't worked for me. Yeah. But, you know, Casino I loved. Of course, Goodfellas. The, the list goes on. I'll throw Shutter I'm, I'm just... Island in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always forget um, about Shutter I'll throw Island. Silence as well. In recent years, Silence really captivated me. Anyway, piffling nonsense. Absolute piffling nonsense. Talking of piffling nonsense, uh, your favourite actor, Jared Leto, is to play fashion designer Carl Lagerfeld in a new biopic. Oh, what accent is he going to use? Yeah, Jared Leto. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I mean... He's if you've seen the Mario Brothers trailer that came out with Chris Pratt not actually putting an Italian accent on, it could have been yeah. worse. They could have put Jared Leto in there doing his Italian accent from House of yes. Gucci. Less said about Jared Leto, the better. Uh, McKenna Grace is returning as Phoebe. It's been confirmed for the sequel okay. for Ghostbusters Afterlife. Speaking about Afterlife, she says she's constantly pressuring the director, Jason Reitman, for more information on the next parts of the story. Uh, and in her words, I literally have no ounce of a clue what the story is. I'm just excited to do another one. I'm just excited to be Phoebe. And I'm excited to see her back because she was an absolute charm throughout that whole film. Held it all together beautifully. Will Smith, we were t- only talking last week about Emancipation, might be getting a release. And December the 2nd is when Apple are giving it a theatrical opening. Oh, good. Uh, the film, which comes from director Antoine Fuqua, will then have a December the 9th release on Apple TV. In addition, the official teaser trailer for the fact-based film has been released, and the film follows an enslaved man who, after recovering from a whipping that nearly killed him, 
brave the swamps of Louisiana armed with only his wits to escape the cold-blooded slave hunters and be free. Um, it looks quite powerful, and the initial word on it is that it is a stellar performance from Smith, potentially Oscar-worthy, which is going to be very awkward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, that's not our problem, Andy. It's not our it's problem. Not, we don't have to figure that, it out. That's for the Oscars to worry about. Yeah. Video game news to round off with. We've got two bits of video game news. One of them is casting me back to my early days of video gaming. And there was an iconic video game called The Oregon Trail that is being turned into a darkly comedic musical feature by the Blades of Glory helmers, Josh Gordon and Will Speck. Now, if you've never played Oregon Trail or never heard heard of it, it it was a simulation game that followed the experiences of 19th century pioneer life with players taking on the role of a wagon leader who must decide what their group of settlers will bring on their journey, along with purchasing and scavenging supplies along the way. And it was hilariously brilliant in that it was practically impossible to complete and players died from disease or other causes at the drop of a hat. Everything would be fine. And then you just get a message saying, you've died of cholera. It's like, what? <laughs> I didn't even know I was <laughs> ill, to quote the old um, uh, old, old joke. <laughs> it's notoriously one of the most difficult games ever made, but it had a huge following when it was released. I've never heard of it. And apparently the two filmmakers were very obsessed with the game. They were talking about what they could cook up next because they really wanted to do another musical. They mentioned that, and now we have the rights to it, and we're putting it together alongside them and some other people. Speck says that um, the darkly comedic tone of the original game with its quick and easy death is part of the appeal. It's always had this dark brand of humour running through it because your chances of dying from everything, from dysentery to a cut, was anything. Basically, every move, you ended up dying. For us, that's returning a little bit to our roots in comedy, marrying it with the fun of doing a big musical, and also just the ambition of taking that very seriously as well as making a big historical Westwood expansion epic that's also about to die from dysentery. I'm kind of intrigued. I think, <laughs> I've I think never heard play- of this game. I'm going to do, do a bit of research after. If they smartly play this in an airplane-esque kind of way, where as ridiculous as the deaths and the situations are, everyone plays it perfectly straight, but then breaks out into musical numbers, this could be a work of Western genius. Right. They need to not lean into the farcical comedy, but actually, like I said, play it straight because that's what made the game so great is it did it all seriously, but like you'd stub your toe and die. <laughs> it was that stupid. Wow, so I've heard of it. I'm well up for this. And the other game, which is getting an adaptation, and this has been speculated for a while, and that's Five Nights at Freddy's, which Blumhouse have had the option for for oh, quite yeah. some time yeah. now. Saw this one. Jim Henson's Creature Shop is already working alongside Blumhouse to bring the game's iconic killer animatronics to life. And Scott Cawthorn created the game, which follows a troubled security guard as he begins working at the family-friendly Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Joint. And while spending his first night on the job, he realises that the night shift won't be so easy because the animatronic creatures turn deadly and can move when not being looked on. Uh, Cawthorn, Tammy and Seth Kudebeck are penning a script and the pre-production is underway for an early 2023 start of filming with Jason Blum and Cawthorn producing the film. Just before we end the news, it's been all over the press this week. It's the 60th anniversary of the first James Bond film, Doctor No. So Andy, I'm going to leave you with a question. What is your favourite Bond theme? I'm going to have to go to the, um, the the simple sweeping of the theme tune on um, on a Majesty's Secret Service. Not um, we have all the time in the world, but the the, the, the orchestral score, the John Barry score element of it, yeah. the John Barry score. I thought that that was the the true perfection. 
of the Bond scores. Uh, if we were talking about like the theme tunes and we're talking about the best title track, that's a tricky one. I do like my rocky, upbeat ones. So, you know, Live and Let Die is up there. But I do think Chris Cornell knocked it out of the park yeah, with no, his You Know My Name. Mine's got to be Paul McCartney and Wings, yeah. Live and Let Die. I think it's the, the, the one that I can listen to outside of it being a soundtrack, if you know what I mean. Yeah. can listen to it in its own right. It's just a great it's... track. Yeah. 60 years of Bond, folks. And that's the news. If you're not already a podcast subscriber, then we insist. No, we downright demand that you head over to your favorite podcast platform, find the film file and hit the subscription button and leave a like because I'm sure you like us. We like you. Because, we yeah, like we you. like you. We really, really do. So become part of the Film File family. And you can learn more by doing any of these things. Head on over to Twitter and engage with us at Film File UK. I'm, I'm always checking in on there and always responding to anyone who talks to us. Other social media platforms, look for Film File UK. Follow us on there. You'll get notifications when the latest episodes drop. Or get directly in touch with us and send us an email podcast at filmfile.uk we would love to hear from you and we'd love to talk about your favorite films on the show we'd love to share your love of films with the world out there and see whether we agree with what your favorite films are films are all an opinion but we would love to know what your opinions are on things that we talk about and why not become part of those nearly fifty thousand listeners and join us on no barriers radio that's no barriers radio.com and listen to The Film File every week, every Thursday at 8 o'clock. And now it's time for this week's deep dive. In our build-up to Halloween, this week we're going to be talking about the 1979 American miniseries television adaptation of Stephen King's 1975 horror novel, Salem's Lot. First a kid disappears, then this. You're not leaving Salem's Lot, are you? I'm not leaving. Don't you understand what's happening? You? Yes, I do. It's in the Marston house. Good evening. I dreamed. You slept there all night? Yeah. A little tired. Didn't sleep much last night. I was dreaming. Somebody out there. Sweet, sweet dreams. I let him in. Directed by Toby Hooper and starring David Soul and James Mason, the plot concerns a returning writer to his hometown of Salem's Lot to discover that the citizens are being turned into vampires. I am old enough to remember this on BBC One way back. I think it would have been at that point about 1980 because I don't think we got it straight away. And if it was 1979, then I certainly wouldn't have watched it. So I'm saying 1980. And boy, did it terrify a young me and my pals. Because A, we couldn't stop talking about it. Uh, and secondly, we daren't leave the house. Uh, this was at a time when you stayed in and you watched TV. You didn't tape it. You stayed in and you watched it and you talked about it the next day. And this is all that we talked about. I got this at Christmas as a, as a Blu-ray uh, and had some trepidation about it because I'd, I'd recently seen the It TV series, which in, in some ways is uh, vastly superior to the, especially the second movie, but it feels incredibly dated. But mm. this has 
this has really held up very well. Um, it was a two-part special. It did come out in Europe as a theatrical version with the extended scenes. But I think the true version of this is the nearly four-hour-long version that uh, was made for television. And as I said, it still holds up remarkably well. Yeah, I, I can't help but agree. I had the same trepidation when I came to sit and watch this this week because it's it's now come off Sky. So those of you who are listening to this now thinking we're going to see it, unfortunately, Sky had it on their sci-fi section up until today. And it was only through seeing that this had like a few weeks left that the other week I says we're covering Salem's Lots. I want to get around to watching this. And I've put off going back to revisit this for years because I watched this way back in the 80s at some point. Um, I'd sat with my mum. I'm a big Stephen King fan. I've got inherited that from my mother and we both sat and watched it back then. And I had the same as you as a like youngster. It chilled me to the bone. Yeah. And it was always that worry. It was like, maybe my memory of it is better than the actual production actually was. Which is always a worry, isn't it? You know, yeah. going back to some of these things that we have talked about uh, and then suddenly thinking, this is not as good as, as I remember it or, or the last time that I saw it. Time hasn't well, been good yeah. on some of the things we've talked about. I mean, if, if we ever went back and revisited Krull, uh, that, that, that's, an ex- that's the example that I always use of something that I loved when I was young. And when I revisited it as an adult, I realized it's not a good film at all. So I was worried that Salem's Lot wouldn't. And I love the book. I think the book is, yeah, I agree with Stephen King. He says that Salem's Lot is his favorite book that he's ever written. Mine too. And it's I, absolutely I my favorite. love the characters. I love the story. I love the pacing. And I was worried that I wouldn't enjoy it. And whilst. Yes, a TV production budget is very noticeable in it. It's framed in that 4-3 box shape. And occasionally the lighting looks very TV movie of the week. But Toby Hooper made the most out of the budget that he had. And it's a solidly paced, well, take off all the previously on and this is coming up sections that bookended the two parts. It's a solidly paced just over three hours with enough splattering of chills to entice even the most jaded of horror fans. The slow build. You know, we are introduced to this town by the writer, a common theme in King's particularly early stories, that it's always a writer who's uh, struggling, returning to their hometown and something happens. The slow build as he's returned there and we are introduced to the town as he doesn't recognise the town around him and doesn't know what's wrong with it. As slowly, bit by bit, he realises that vampires are in their midst. It gives it an uneasy edge throughout whilst we're focusing just on this core three or four characters. I completely forgot that Bonnie Bedelia was in this. And when I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, that's her from Die Hard. And I, I generally thought, well, he's probably better off without her in Die Hard and he should have divorced her anyway because she turns into a vampire. Spoiler alert for something that's been out for 40 years. But no, it, the cast or the cast give it their all. James Mason as Straker gets a more prominent role. In the book, there's more prominence placed on Barlow because in the book, Barlow is very well-spoken, gentlemanly. He's yeah, very... it's nothing like the Reggie Nalder version, which is a, a tribute to um, Nosferatu, basically. Here, uh, I think they smartly decided to go for a Nosferatu kind of approach. So it's a really sinister, doesn't speak, and just a, a, a proper gothic vampire as a horror presence, which means that James Mason Straker is the well-spoken gentleman character to interact with people and dissuade them from thinking there's anything wrong going on in the town. And it all plays so great. But what really stood out as being fantastic, and I was gobsmacked at how well this stood up. I am terrified now 
that something's going to scratch at my upstairs window. <laughs> I mean, and that scene out. alone sent kids our age yeah. uh, into meltdown. And see a floating child form from the mist. And this is smart special effects. Rather than hanging them, hanging in from wires and doing wire work, which you can always tell wire work. They, they used, didn't they use a crate? Uh, they used a, a boom crane, crane yeah. So yeah. Uh, he's strapped to a boom crane. And that's how he gets in through the window. That's how they do the effect on it. It's absolutely brilliant. And they filmed it backwards so that they could have a smoke generator go off as he's been pulled out the window. But when it plays it forwards, it looks like the smoke coalesces into the form of a human being who then comes into the window. It's simple effects, but it's still jaw-droppingly effective. And I was, it sent chills down my spine. Yeah, the, the couple of scenes that they utilise that effect, I was just like, this is why this this whole series, miniseries holds up so well. Like I say, yes, it looks like a TV movie at times, but you very quickly drawn into the characters and the effects are convincing enough that you're just caught in the peril and the chill. And it's not a film with a happy ending. No, it's not. I, I, um, I've got to point out a couple of things. I think what Toby Hooper did with a, a TV style movie, it's fairly bloodless. Mm. But what it does have in in spades is, is it's spooky. It's atmospheric. It gets under your skin. It's delightfully creepy, and it has those those standout moments that have made it kind of I- iconic, really. And in the same way with with the TV version of it, while it's it's low budget TV ness makes it hard to watch now. You but you have to have to watch it for Tim Curry and and, and the mm. casting. I think the casting in the in the TV version of it is is marvelous. But this sticks, and I think it sticks because it really gets under your skin, and it adapts the the book. While not perfectly, it's the best adaptation of of one of King's works that really has the time to breathe, and and I, and I think it's it's a it's a fantastic fantastic miniseries that that really has a legacy to it. The the influence that it's had on things that followed. I mean, the nineteen eighties film Fright Night was clearly inspired by Salem's Lot, but it's not just a vampire movie. It also has a horror a haunted house aesthetic with the beautiful design of the Marston house. Yes, which was a set. Yeah, they they couldn't find a house that looked right, and so they built one in order to make it look that that perfect blend of like gothic architecture, but with a dilapidated presence. The runtime of it might seem long when you look at it on paper, but boy, it flew by, because I was just caught up in it. And like I say, it's not a happy ending. It doesn't end on a happy note. It could have ended with the destruction of the house and them going off. But then you catch up with them later. You know, the survivors of the town, characters played by David Soule, Ben Mears, and Lance Kerwin as Mark Pe- Mark Petrie, have had to be on the run since because the surviving vampires have been hunting them down ever since they took out their master. And that's how they're going to spend the rest of their lives. And in what is a perfectly deft move for the screenwriting, they took one of the prominent deaths and put it at the end. Yes. What would have happened earlier on in the story actually has a lot more poignancy and significance by him finding them finding Susan lying in the bed only to find that she's now a vampire and he has to kill her. And it's a really downbeat ending that really hammers home that at the end of the day, you might have thought you'd beaten the vampires, but the vampires will live on forever. I, I want to point out, you, you, you mentioned James Mason, who, who's always charming, is incredibly charming. I want to mention how great David Soul is in this. 
Yes. So clearly always best known for Starsky and Hutch and uh, has had an interesting, if not reached the dizzying heights of his success with, with uh, Starsky and Hutch. But in this, he's phenomenal. He's terrified as he enters the town before any of the vampiric storyline starts happening. And he is just incredible, a real screen presence, which makes me think about the remake, which is, uh, should have been released this year, is now coming out next year. How much work it's got to do to be as yeah. good as this and, and how much work to be as good as, as David Saul, because he's so believable as a writer. He's charming. He's drawn into being heroics just as an opportunity to survive. It's really got it's really got its work cut out for it to be as pure a Stephen King adaptation as this is. And probably the only thing that's missing, which I'm, I'm sure that the film will address, is the fact that we don't get to see the vampires running the town afterwards, uh, yeah. and and what happened to to the town of Salem's Lot, which is is significant in the book. But you know, I can't hold that against the the, the miniseries because it's so well done. Uh, I know that there was uh, another miniseries that was made in the 2000s, uh, 2004, I believe it was released, which had yeah. Rob Lowe as Ben Mears. I've not seen that. I am interested to see it because apparently it's got middling reviews. It's yeah, I mean it, it doesn't it doesn't hit the heights of uh, of, of Toby Hooper's. It's uh, it's it's not as it's not dreadful. It's just it's just a little bit all over the place. It does have the ending that I've I've, I've just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, Rutger Hauer is in it as uh, as Barlow, but if you want to see one version of of Salem's Lot, then there is only one version that you can see, and it's the Toby Hooper, David Soul, James Mason starrer two part TV adaptation from 1979, and it's well worth your time. Andy, where can we find it? Like I said, you could have found it on Sky Sci-Fi up until today. At this point in time, you'll just have to purchase it for rental off most services or do what Lee's got and go and get the Blu-ray. Because Nip round two hours and watch it. I'm going to be picking up that Blu-ray myself, having now revisited it and realising that actually this is a film that I want in my collection. This is a film worth watching. Never, don't let the fact that it was made as a TV movie in the 70s put you off thinking that this is anything other than a great classic horror film. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So talking of Stephen King's landing on Netflix this week is another Stephen King adaptation, Mr. Harrigan's Phone. Why do you continue to come here? Because I enjoy our time together. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. iPhones just came out. Thank you. Let's give you a nickname. Pirate King. Look it. <laughs> yeah. I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Mr. Harrigan, has anyone ever tried to Take advantage of you? How'd you deal with that? Harshly. Yeah, so Mr. Harrigan's phone landed on Netflix on Friday, directed by the esteemed uh, scriptwriter turned director John Lee Hancock, based upon the novella of the same name from his collection If It Bleeds, stars Donald Sutherland, Jaden Martell, who you will recognize from it. So it all has some kind of absolutely perfect <laughs> symmetry. I like the book a lot. The, the It's not quite a short story. What is it when uh, a novella? It's not quite a novel. It's not quite a short story. I, I thought this was okay. I'm surprised that it was produced by Jason Bloom and Ryan Murphy because it, it really does centre almost less on the supernatural elements that, that you would expect from, from both of those producers and much more on the relationship between Craig 
uh, a Mr. Harrigan. Yeah, the story of the film is that Craig is instructed to go and simply read to the retired, eccentric and rather belligerent businessman, Mr. Harrigan, three times a week. But over the years, as he's doing it, he kind of builds up a rapport and the, the pair become close friends, despite Harrigan showing some antisocial tendencies at times. And during this time, Craig starts high school and becomes kind of bullied by a bully named Kenny. And so Mr. Harrigan is his, kind of his only friend that he really latches onto. And he buys Mr. Harrigan a phone so that he can stay in touch with him and call him at any time. And then when Mr. Harrigan passes away, he sneaks the phone into his coffin and starts getting messages from the dead Mr. Harrigan, apparently. And that's when it goes into the supernatural aspect. Now, this film, it had me for the first half of it. It completely drew me in. The interaction between Jaden Martell and Donald Sutherland as Craig and Mr. Harrigan was perfect. It was charming. You could see the friendship building. It was like a nice version of Apt Pupil. Now, anyone who's seen seen or read yes. Apt Pupil knows that that goes in a very dark situation. But this is like a, a genuine... A genuine, like, Mr. Harrigan is kind of getting in touch with what his early childhood was like through Craig. And Craig is getting to bring out some humanity from someone who the rest of the town don't quite understand the depth of. And it's a beautiful friendship. And then the supernatural stuff starts happening towards the end. And some of it feels kind of slight and inconsequential. And it's handled not in a chilling way, just in a matter-of-fact kind of way. And I think it just kind of ran out of steam for the final act, that it just didn't feel like it wrapped up well as a result. But for that first half to two-thirds of the film, I was completely and utterly in on this. It's, I mean, Stephen King is, is, a, is actually is a, was a wonderful writer, um, having, having read this short story. And he, and, uh, unlike a lot of King's work, it's sometimes the human relationships, which are at the heart of it. Sometimes the horror is, is almost secondary to it. And this was kind of, kind of a little bit, it, well, it was very accurate to the book. It plays exactly like the story, but the horror is really underplayed. It's, it's not a horror story at all. It is more of a, a coming of age story. Uh, and a, about the the mishap of wanting revenge, and when you reflect on that, how revenge changes it, as also the arrival of of the smartphone. Mm. It's got an intriguing premise, but I would like to see it have been a little bit more visceral. Not not hugely because it didn't need it, but for the for the elements to work, it just feels a little bit mundane. Now, I I didn't have a, a difficult time with it. I I enjoyed it. It's it's slow. It's precise. It's a great character study with elements of supernatural. Those elements of supernatural, for me, could have been ramped up, and it just feels overlong. Didn't not enjoy it. I was intrigued by it. I knew the twists in the story. I knew where it was going, but it, it just lacks. It lacks what it needed to become, as we've just talked about with Salem's Lot. It lacks being scary and therefore being truly memorable. Yeah, great character study, but should have been something more than what the end result was. It's a shame because that start really hooked me in. It just lost me too much at the end for it to be anything other than just a mild diversion of a film. Something that did hook us both in, I'm, I'm pretty certain, whether we both enjoyed it or not, what I'm about to find out is Disney's foray into the TV specials based around Marvel characters as we got 
Werewolf by Night. Marvel Studios' Werewolf by Night is unlike anything else Marvel has done before. Critics are calling it one of the best homages to classic horror. Good luck. I'll be rotting for you. <laughs> Disney Plus. So I said to you, Andy, that I, I didn't know what to expect with this based on the trailer. I didn't know if it was played for laughs, whether it's a spoof. It was played as right down to the to the text as a universal horror movie. Mm. Deep shadows, black and white, uh, kind of sometimes some arch performances. I, to be honest, I I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure, and then I watched it, uh, and what we got was. Gail Garcia Bernal, uh, who stars as Jack Russell, the werewolf by night, if you remember your comic books, joining a, a secret cabal of monster hunters to claim what is known as the Bloodstone, directed and, of course, scored by longtime Marvel composer Michael Giacchino. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. This I really did. It was, it was <laughs> a blast. It was fun did have horror moments. The black and white universal feel felt absolutely spot on. It suffered a little bit from being a little bit too goofy at times, but once it got into the horror element, uh, I, I, I was in. Uh, and even more amazingly, my other half absolutely loved it. She's not a Marvel fan by any stretch of the imagination. She thought it was, thought it was great. We had, we had a blast with it. Yeah, it was Marvel's love letter to the universal monsters films with the same kind of camera angles that you get the beautiful beautiful set design and the weirdness and the, the whole theme and aesthetic you had laura donnelly as elsa bloodstone and elsa bloodstone's not a well-known character in the comic book series from marvels and this is what they do great is they take these characters that no one's heard of bring them to the screen and now everyone wants to know more about elsa bloodstone as all of them are trying to become the one who's got the bloodstone and become the, you know, the leader of the hunters. And they're given this whole trial where the person who can ca who can capture and kill the monster that they've set loose. And you wonder, what's this monster? What's this monster? And it turns out it's uh, it's it's one of the most peaceful and loving but horrific looking characters that Marvel have ever gave, given us. The Man Thing, represented in such a marvelous way. Wow, how good was Man Thing? <laughs> it just—I mean—stole the show. Actually, when I say stole, stole the show. There were three major scene stealers in this, as you mentioned, Elsa Bloodstone. But yeah, it was—it was directly Man Thing from the comics. I loved Gail Garcia Bernal. I always liked Gail Garcia Bernal. Yeah, and and I think he played Jack Russell, the werewolf by night. It, very cold and reserved at the start, but you could kind of understand why he was. But it's then when he interacts with the man thing that the human side of him came out and it was like, oh, I'm in. Like you say, there's so, sometimes it leans a bit too crazy on the silly. Did we really need the animatronic corpse? No. Did I enjoy it? Hell yeah. I still enjoyed it. <laughs> it wasn't necessary, but boy, I enjoyed it. When it got silly, yes, it went silly, but it was still in a fun way and it fitted with the aesthetic of it all. I had so much fun. If anything, I could throw as negative. 
is I wanted it to be longer. I wanted more from it. And I would happily tune in again for another special exactly like this. If they want to do these every every October, do another Elsa Bloodstone story with Jack Russell as the werewolf by night. I'm there. Or just give us a, a Man-Thing series. Come on. The world needs it. <laughs> yep, I've, I've got to agree with you. It was fun. I enjoyed it. It passed 52 minutes wonderfully. It was uh, a new area for Marvel to explore. I want them to explore this world even more. It was atmospheric. It was spooky. It was it was a, a lot of fun. And I, I liked that Jack Russell's werewolf looked like werewolf by night. Yeah. It was a different take on a, on a werewolf that we'd not seen before. But it reminded me of the way it was. Uh, he was drawn by Michael Plug and written by Doug Mensch back in the day. A lot of fun. I, I'm not going to watch it again. Oh, yes. Uh, you've got a couple more treats for us. I have indeed. Well, treats is probably a stretching it a bit with one of them. So let's move on to Amsterdam, which landed at the box office last week. We're in a bit of a predicament. A man was killed. Please take that we did it. We need to clear our names. Oh, that's something. Things have gotten more complicated. Do you want to start this? Drinks on me. (laughs) There's more where this came from. Let's go to Amsterdam. I've been quite forgiving of David O. Russell films over the years. And whilst many lavished derision on American Hustle, I was amongst the few who actually found it quite engaging. With his latest film, Amsterdam, the lineup of cast alone made sure that I was in even before I knew what it was about. Names such as Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Anya Taylor-Joy, Zoe Saldana, Michael Shannon, Timothy Oliphant, Andrea Riseborough, Robert De Niro and Rami Malek. There was no way I was missing the chance to see this on the big screen. Based upon a 1933 political conspiracy in the US, the film follows three friends who find themselves embroiled in the mystery behind the murder of a US senator. As the woven tapestry of conspiracy plays out around them, Not only do they need to prove their innocence, but they must also help unravel the dark plans that threaten the world on the brink of another war. Now, whilst the true story aspect certainly lends some solid story on which to draw from, and the cast are as strong on screen as you would expect from such names, even if Chris Rock once more almost feels like he's about to launch into a stand-up routine, the look of the film is evocative of the era in which it's set, with grand set designs and costumes, but sadly, the whole thing feels like a very dull affair. It's less of a woven tapestry, a more afraid, unraveled blanket. The pacing is seriously off, and the film meanders around significantly to the detriment of the flow of the story. At various moments throughout, I found my mind drifting off, and I had to concentrate to pay attention because the film did nothing to draw me back in. When, at the end of the film, were provided with a rather unnecessary recap of events because they weren't complicated, to be honest with you. It's almost as though Russell knew audiences will probably have drifted off to sleep at some point and so wanted to remind you of what you probably missed while you were nodding off. Indeed, as I said, the plot isn't as complex as it thinks it is, but it spends 134 minutes trying its best to tell you that it's smartly woven. As I said, the cast are great, but they are also mostly slight. Aside from a core handful, many are not more than fleeting presences, lending nothing really story-wise, even though it's always a pleasure to see them on screen. The end result is a film that looks great, is acted well, but fails to leave any lasting impression. 
and within minutes of the credits rolling, most of it will be entirely forgotten. Uh, I, I don't think you're alone. It's got uh, it's a lot of slating uh, in the US, and uh, it's, it looks like it's one of those overblown affairs that, you know what, I thought didn't happen anymore. What else have you got? And the other film that I've got is The Woman King. I am a general. You are still a child. I want to fight for my king. To be a warrior, you must kill your teeth. But you are special. Show me you are worthy. This is who I am. Behold, the bravest of the brave. The woman king. The woman king. In the 1800s, the Dahomey kingdom are close to war with the Oyo empire. The slave trade has seen African nations pitted against each other, using their captured enemies to trade for more wealth. The Dahomey's fierce female warriors, the Agoji, led by Viola Davis's general Naniska, set about training a new generation of warrior ready for the upcoming war. Amongst them is Nawi, a strong-willed girl who was offered to the king after her father grew tired of her refusals to be married. As the new recruits train, in the background the slave trade plays a large part, with the Dahomey looking to break away from the trade. Now, don't go into this expecting a history lesson. Whilst it does open up some thoughts on the time it's set, and, contrary to many claims, it doesn't promote slavery as a positive thing, it is more a matter of a fictional film set within a time period. Whilst Viola Davis is top billing, this is certainly, mostly Thuzo Mebedu's film, who plays Nawi. We follow the young recruit in her journey through her training and her emotional journey as she learns more about her own past. And Mabedu is mesmerising in that central presence. From friendly rivalries with other recruits to her strong-willed interactions with Davis's Naniska or Lashana Lynch's Izogi, her fiery nature dominates. That's not to say that Davis doesn't stand tall. Indeed, she's proud, she's fierce, and she's beautifully strong throughout. The action is swift and it's brutal, and it packs better thrills than many of the higher-budgeted blockbusters of recent years. And it ranks it alongside other such historical epics that are very loose and free with the history, such as Braveheart or Gladiator, and other such period-set action films of a similar ilk. If you felt like this year's summer blockbusters were a tad lacking, The Woman King more than makes up for them, with sumptuous scenery, brutal action, and top-tier performances from all involved. Well worth checking out. I, I, I've got to be honest, Andy, I really fancy this. I thought the trailers were were showing something different and new. As you said, historically, it's, it's, it's all over the place. But colour me intrigued on this one. What else is coming out? over the next week. Uh, cinemas will see Halloween ends. We'll hopefully be talking about that next week. And hopefully it'll end. Hopefully <laughs> this is the end. One th film that we probably won't talk about next week is Lyle Lyle Crocodile. But if you've got small kids, looks like it could be fun for them. Lost Boys 25th anniversary gets a limited release across the UK. And Emily also lands at cinemas this week. Over on Now TV and Sky, Sonic 2 lands this week. And The Accursed. Netflix sees The Curse of Bridge Hollow which sees Marlon Wayans and Pryor Ferguson as a father and daughter who team up to save their town from an evil force. One that I missed last week mentioning, because it was a quite a surprise drop, is over on Amazon, Ty West's X has landed. So oh, right. before Pearl comes out in the UK, we've got a chance to see X. Over on Disney Plus this week, Rosaline lands, which is a fresh take on Romeo and Juliet, 
told from the comedic perspective of Juliet's cousin, Rosaline, who was also Romeo's recent love interest. And that wraps up quite a solid week, really, for films across all the services. And that kind of wraps up us for this week. But before we go, and yes, you know if you're a regular listener, we do this every week. We tell you our neat thing. Something that we've enjoyed, whether it's a film, TV series, a book, a meal, you name it. As long as it's neat, we're going to talk about it. Andy, your neat thing is? So I have basically given up with listening to Michael Mann's Heat 2 book on Audible. Like I've mentioned before, it's um, I don't know whether it's how it's read or how it's written, but it's not quite gelling with me. So I spent my latest credit and got myself something else. And the book that I picked was one that I was sceptical about going into because I was worried it would be a hit piece on someone who I've got a lot of adoration for. And that's the book True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee by Abraham Reisman. And it's read by Vicus Adam. And what I've discovered is a fantastically researched book about Stan Lee's life. We all know that he was a hustler. We all know that he was a storyteller. We all know that maybe he didn't create half of the stories that he claims he did. This goes into an intricate detail of all the evidence on both sides. Who was right? Was Kirby telling the truth? Was Stan Lee telling the truth? Both of them contradicted themselves at various points. Ditko and the relationships that Stan Lee had with all the people who he worked with through his life and also his family relationships, which we know had a huge impact particularly towards the end, especially with his daughter, who um, there's a lot of accusations about. But it's a fantastic and fascinating study, starting from his family history and how his ancestors settled in America and then how Stan was raised, his relationship with his father, then him starting to work as a comic writer and then his work, like his building up of Marvel and then him building up the brand of Stan Lee. And it doesn't show Stan Lee in a positive light but it doesn't show him in a particularly negative light either. It just tells the facts as told by all witnesses and all circumstantial evidence and anything that's out there. It's really, really fascinating. Now, you can buy this as a book and read it, but I do suggest listening to the audio book because Vicus Adam really sells the, the whole story. He's a really good storyteller and he's telling this life story of someone who's one of my heroes telling me the negative things that I kind of already knew about, but telling me in more detail, but still keeping my love for Stan Lee. This is a marvellous examination of Stan Lee's life. I'm three quarters of the way through it. I'm just into the 2000s now. And so I know that it leads all the way up to his passing and the years that followed. So I thoroughly recommend that if you have an, a credit on Audible, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee is a well worth purchase any Marvel fan. I'm, I'm in quite similar territory. You'll see why in a second, Andy, because my neat thing this week was this week's episode of She-Hulk. Now, you mentioned the arrival of Leapfrog into the <laughs> MCU. Mine was the return, the return of Charlie Cox playing Matt Murdock and Daredevil and the joy that it brought me to see the return of Daredevil. As I said many times, my favourite comic book character, the one I've always gone back to when I've stopped reading comics for any stretch of the imagination, I've always tried to keep my hand in with uh, with Daredevil. Yes, Cox returned, pulling double duty as lawyer Matt Murdock and 
explained why he was in Los Angeles and his brutal vigilante alter ego, the man without fear himself, the daredevil, turning up in a new costume. And, and I thought, you know, would would it work? The gritty daredevil in She-Hulk? Yes, it did. It reminded me why I enjoyed comics. And that was that superheroes team up. And it didn't yeah. matter. If you got Marvel team up, it didn't matter that Daredevil was going through dark times in Frank Miller's stories. If he was appearing with Spidey, it would fit into that. And that's what team up books were about. And it was just great. We've not really had this kind of a team up yet. No. It just hit the right notes for me. Um, Matt as a womanizer, as he's the character always is, uh, it fit into the world of She-Hulk. Uh, we saw, finally, Daredevil being able to do some of the things that he could do in the comics that we didn't get in the Netflix series. And I'm, I'm telling you, Charlie Cox was born to play mm. Matt Murdock. It was absolutely, absolutely spot on. Loved it. It, it made me giddy watching it and i'm now looking forward very much to the finale of she hulk but i'm looking so much to the daredevil born again series and matt murdoch returning in echo just just made me smile like a silly comic book reading fool yeah it, it was a great episode it was fun it was you know full of that usual she hulk energy and uh and it's upset some of the sad little basement dwellers out there who are upset that daredevil actually had sex he is he, he's all over yeah. <laughs> in his, yeah. his comics how many relationships yeah. he's been always married? been like that but he's... these people i mean i saw one quote from someone who said that by having him sleeping with she hulk it's made daredevil unrelatable why because he's not a virgin and you are <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a there's a great thing on twitter and i can't remember who the author is um and she's a, a phd and she talks about Daredevil's romantic life. Mm. Uh, and it's really, really spot on. It's an interesting read. He's always been a womanizer. Unlike any other character, he has had relationships and moves on. He's uh, been married. He's perpetually... There's even jokes about it within in the series, uh, but I had such a good time with it. And uh, it, it just made me it just made me smile. And it made me yeah. smile. And that's it for this week, folks. We'll be back again with another film file. Andy, hopefully I'll get to see you in the week. Yes, hopefully we'll both get to see uh, Halloween ends together. Will it end? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows uh, but I guess time. we'll I guess we'll find out at some point. Andy, I've got to go because there's a kid floating outside my window saying, open the window, please let me in, it's okay. I'm your friend. Because he commands it. I told you I'm tired. It was going so well. <laughs> okay, note to self, press record before we start talking for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Bollocks. Okay, we'll get straight into it. Sorry, yeah. I cut you off in your prime. <laughs> uh, I can smell dinner because I'm rushing through now. <laughs> Moving on. If you're a big fan of the film family, you want to know more about it. Um, okay. Bye, film geeks. And yes, they live. Oh, yeah, because I said, yeah, some of us do anyway. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and then yeah. went. Hello, I'm. Bum, 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 bum.
Yeah. 